Well, it is indeed a joy to be with you here this morning. Um, we've had some great messages to begin and um, start us off on our journey through the book of Philippians. James has rightly uh, started us on a course of letting us know that, that the, the main message of this book, the main emphasis why Paul is writing to this church that he probably hasn't seen for eight or nine years, is he wants them to continue to grow in fellowship together in the gospel for the sake of the spread of the gospel. So he does this in a number of ways, but he begins from verse 3 through 11 by giving them um, uh, a prayer. He prays for them. And then he gives them a personal update um, from verses 12 through 26. And in these verses we see Paul's very own fatherly love for these kids that he's got in the faith. We see his desire to see them again. We see, actually his desire is, um, James talked to us uh, two weeks ago, he wants them to be encouraged by his imprisonment. Interesting perspective. And so while we've already seen his desire for fellowship and unity in, in the verses we've seen today, or in the, in the past couple of weeks, today's passage is going to spell out how it is that we ought to attain this fellowship. So if you have your Bibles, and if you haven't yet already, uh, turn to Philippians 1, and we're going to go ahead and read through um, verses 27 through 30. Our text actually today, even though it's not a new chapter, it does begin a new section of the book. So the section that we've got today um, is an exhortation. We haven't seen that quite yet, but uh, Paul is going to start exhorting the church to live purposefully, partnering humbly in the gospel, in the faith of Jesus Christ. And it's going to continue for the next couple of chapters. So let's read Philippians 1, 27 through 30. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This, this composure, this is a sign to them, the opponents, that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Great section of scripture today. So let's, let's, uh, let's begin at the beginning. Okay? Paul begins with this word, whatever happens, or other translations, only or above all else, or just one thing. It's a word of exclusive priority. What follows is of utmost importance. It's like Paul underlining, bolding, italicizing, doing whatever he can to get the attention of the, of the listener. Whatever happens, listen to this. It means if you do anything Make sure that above all else, 
Whatever, in whatever situation, you are devoting yourself only to just one pursuit, mainly. Paul is here drawing our attention to the most important concern for every one of us after our conversion. Okay, so Paul, you've got our attention. What is it you want us to hear? Paul writes, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Sounds good, but what does it mean? Okay, what does this mean? The governing command here is conduct or live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's a little bit different from how he uses the same kind of idea elsewhere. He says, walk worthy. Okay? Um, that's a Hebrew idiom. This is more of a Roman idiom. It spoke to the civic responsibilities of the citizens of a nation or state. And as we've already noted, the city of uh, Philippi was a converted Roman colony that had been actually made uh, a Roman city. Okay? So these people were Roman citizens. That was a big deal back then. It was, it was like Puerto Rico becoming a, a state. It was like a big deal. Okay? Um, they were part of the, of the biggest force on the planet at that time. And so just like we as Americans have our national pride, okay, Paul implores the Philippian church that even though they have this sense of national pride that came as being a Roman colony and this imperial pride that would have buoyed them and I'm, I'm a Roman citizen now, he says, you conduct yourself as a citizen of the gospel of Christ. Or elsewhere, in the book even, in chapter 3, he'll mention, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven now. Okay, this, is, this is where your ultimate allegiance belongs now. So simply stated, to conduct oneself in a manner worthy means to live a life that rightly, rightly reflects the organization or greater cause to which we have willingly aligned ourselves with. The, uh, the, the idea isn't too far removed from our present day. Um, I remember in high school when I was a senior, uh, my teachers, um, I went to a, s a small private school, so they expected a lot out of us. And So if we were seniors and we were goofing off, they would say, what do you guys, junior hires? We expect way more out of you guys right now. You know, we'd get that lecture quite a bit. Um, there's a certain expectation that comes along with the class that you identify yourself with. Okay? Um, we do this all the time with doctors. Matt, we expect something out of you, right? So you've, you've aligned yourself with this Hippocratic oath. You know, I, I pledge to you know, protect life and, and help people and not destroy life and that kind of thing. We expect that from folks. Okay, so similarly, Paul's exhorting the church he says, you have identified yourselves with the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Conduct yourselves in a manner that aligns itself 
with that class, with that citizenship. The driving message here, and arguably of the entire book of Philippians, and quite possibly even the message of the entire New Testament, is that the church ought to honor her Savior by cherishing his work on her behalf. And consequently, she should conduct herself in a manner that speaks the truth about his nature and his work. That was a mouthful. Let me state that again. The driving message of our text today, and quite possibly the text of the, 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 the letter itself, is that the church ought to honor her Savior by cherishing his work on her behalf, and consequently, she should conduct herself in a manner that speaks the truth about his nature and his work. The end of this exhortation will be the personal prizing of our Savior, and the result of this work will be the spread of his fame and his kingdom throughout the whole world. That's why this is such a big deal. Whatever else happens, only, above all other things, devote yourself to this work, Paul says. So what does this look like in our everyday Christian lives? It is, it's a bit of an abstract, nebulous idea. How do I walk worthy of this great kingdom? I've thought about it for a while. And uh, one of the, the, the things that I've concluded is that meditation upon this gospel is essential. Okay? If we don't know what gospel it is that we're to walk worthy of, we won't be able to walk worthy of it. Okay? So let's just do a thought exercise here and consider four facets of this beautiful gem we know is the gospel of Christ meditate on it, and ask ourselves, how do these truths change the way we live? So facet number one, truth number one of the gospel. Okay, these, are, these are not an exhaustive list, by the way. Okay, there are many, 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 many facets of the gospel. These are just four. Okay, number one, God is the holy creator of the universe. That is part of the gospel. Okay? God is the holy creator of the universe. We ought to therefore live in awe of his majesty. Okay? Sometimes it helps us to think about the majesty of God. David does this in Psalm 8. He says, When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, God, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what? What is man that you're mindful of him? That you're giving him any consideration at all? Understand how big God is and how big his creation is, how small you are. Isaiah writes, for God, God asks, who will you compare me or make me equal to? Who will you compare me with so that we should be like each other? We're not. No one is like me. Okay? He continues, I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. Okay? God, we need to establish this, 
God is the ruling creator of the universe. There's no one like him. No world leader. No cosmic force trumps his power. He rules, literally. This ought to drive us to live lives worthy of that fact. In awe of who he is. Not quick to judge him. Quick to listen to him and submit to him. Leads us to our second consideration of the gospel. We once, this is crazy, we were once rebellious sinners shaking our fists in the face of this great and glorious ruler. You guys look great today. You, you have smiles on your face, most of you, some of you, I guess. Um, you don't have like blood covering your hands from the person you just got, okay? You're very nice people, okay? You, you weren't always as charming as you were today, and I don't want to chalk that up to your goodness as a work of the Spirit, okay? But remember, sometimes we have to do this. Paul tells us, remember who you were. Remember, some of you were adulterers and greedy swindlers. You guys were like this. It defined who you were. And sometimes it would do us a bit of good, not to get depressed in the sense that, oh, this is a terrible person, but remember where you've been saved from. We were willingly blinded by the evil deceiver so that we couldn't see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Paul says it elsewhere. He says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we previously walked according to the ways of the world. It means we had no thought for the ways of God. Continuing, he says, we all previously lived in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thought, and by nature were children of God's, this great creator's, wrath. That's a bad place to be. It is a scary thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, the writer of Hebrews says. So I call to you, if you have not repented of your sin, God's wrath still hangs on you. And repent Recognize the glory of the Creator and run to Him. Truly grasping the depravity of our unregenerate nature will drive us to live a life marked by humility. There's, there's, no, other, there's no other conclusion if rightly understood. If you really understand that God's amazing, He's powerful, He's great, there's no, other one, no one like Him. And you truly understand your rebellion and your pitiful attempt to usurp his power in your life. Humility must be the conclusion. We are so small. That's one way we can walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Thirdly, 
We've been adopted as sons. This is the good news. I don't want to leave you in this mire. Uh, We've been adopted as sons through Christ's death and resurrection. We can therefore live in gratitude as trophies of God's grace. Okay, so before one beam of light shed itself on the inky expanse of space, God was already purposefully planning his rescue plan for you. Before Adam and Eve partook of their first supper in the garden, if you will, together in rebellion against their holy creator, God had already purposed his son to come partake in the last supper to establish a new covenant for his church that she might feast at his marriage supper as his bride. Let me read that again. Before Adam and Eve partook of their first supper in the garden in rebellion against their holy creator, God had already purposed his son to come partake in the last supper that established a new covenant for his church that she might feast at his marriage supper as his bride. That's where we are as the church. We were once alienated and hostile toward God. But God has reconciled us through Christ, through his physical body, Paul writes, through his death, that he might present us holy and faultless and blameless before the Father. So the good news, guys, we have been adopted into God's family, and therefore we can live lives of joy and gratitude. And lastly, for the sake of time, not because of the sake of substance of this gospel, um, Jesus' kingdom really is spreading all throughout the world, okay? okay this, is, this is good news of the gospel. So how does this aspect in particular, the the gospel spreading throughout the world. How does that honor, how, do, how can we honor Christ and honor the gospel by just meditating on that? Well, when we meditate on this truth, it, it gives us hope. Helps us to live in hope, knowing that one day Jesus' kingdom will be established for the eternal ages as the supreme reality throughout the earth. Paul strengthened the, the church at Colossae by saying that the, the gospel truth, this, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing all over, all over the world, just as it had among them since the day they heard it and recognized God's grace and truth. That's encouraging. All of, it, all of us in this room are testament to the viral nature of the spread of God's kingdom. Do you know that you're sitting roughly 6,000 miles away from where Jesus commissioned his disciples in the Great Commission, we truly are the utmost parts of the earth. You can get farther than 6,000, but not much further, okay? That's good news. We are the chosen race now. We're a holy nation, a people for his possession. We are sons of mercy and light in the kingdom of light, this kingdom is vast, and its prosperity will never end. Her king, Jesus, reigns on a throne. 
He reigns on the throne of David, shedding light for the nations and providing God's salvation to the end of the earth. Our king is the great and glorious king of kings and lord of lords. And it should be the expectation of every believer that one day this Lord, who we cannot see, will come and establish his kingdom physically on this planet. Revelation 21 says that God's dwelling will be with men and he will live with them. They will be his people. This is very covenantal language. It's all throughout the Bible. They, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. This gospel promises hope to us in the most dire straits, just like Andy was talking about earlier. This is hope for us now. So this good news, and we've just covered four aspects. God's greatness as creator, our rebellion as sinners, Jesus' rescue as savior, and Jesus' eternal reign as king will produce awe and humility and gratitude and hope by the Spirit's work. Those are just four categories in which we can walk worthy of this gospel of Christ. So I want to think of the, the, the uh, antithesis here. Okay? When we don't walk or conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of this gospel? We demonstrate either one of two things. One, we have misgivings about the reality of the gospel. All those things we just mentioned, we have, we have a misgiving about them. We don't truly, uh, really? Do I really believe Jesus will come? Do I really believe he's all that great? Do I really believe I'm all that bad? We either demonstrate that or... We slight the gospel and cheapen its worthiness as we, as we don't meditate on it, okay? We don't think something's worth our two cents to think about. We demonstrate that it's not all that valuable, okay? So let me encourage you, take time to familiarize yourself again and again and again with the glorious gospel to which you've been called. This is why we must conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Part of that is meditation on the word, familiarizing ourselves with it. Okay? All right, so, so this, is, this is how we might practically do this every day. Notice next in our passage the effects Okay, in uh, the same verse, verse 27, we read that the effects of conducting ourselves in this manner are not conditioned upon circumstances. Okay, so he says, then, then, or consequently, whether I, Paul, come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know. And then he goes on to describe the effects that the gospel will be, that will be present. So he says, you know, whether I come, because he's not with the Philippians. Remember, he's in, in kind of house arrest right now. He says, whether I come to you or not, I know that 
defects of, the, of walking or conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, I know that those will be present with you. This is an important command for us here at North Point for a couple reasons, one of which is pretty present. Um, there's obviously one pastor who's not with us here this morning. He's on sabbatical. Okay? There's another pastor who will shortly be leaving us in a longer-term fashion. So we've got to think to ourselves, okay, my growth and my spiritual um, progression um, my walking and conducting myself in a manner worthy of the gospel ought not to be dependent on them. Whether they're here or not, it ought to be continuing. Sure, our spiritual growth is impacted by these men in particular. Paul himself, the same writer, writes that Jesus gave the church pastors and teachers to grow them up in the faith. But here the Spirit's calling us to remember the source of our strength. It's not in them. It's not in each other. The source for your Christian growth is not in the person sitting next to you. God, I mean, Peter, Peter says this, God has given us everything we need to live life in a godly manner in the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Okay? Now, let me qualify. The reason why our growth is impacted by others, particularly James and Lee that I'm talking about here, is because these men point us well, exceedingly well, to the knowledge of God. Okay? The reason why it's hard to be by yourself in your Christian walk is because others point you well to the knowledge of God. But God has promised that he will always give us means necessary to know him. Okay? Imagine these Philippians. Like, okay, imagine the Philippian jailer, right? So he gets converted. He's this jailer. I don't know what their lives are like. Um, but he's a jailer. And then Paul gives him the gospel, and he's like begging Paul for his own life and Paul gives him the message of truth. And so if there's one guy, you know, that you want to stick with you the rest of your life, if you're the Philippian jailer, it's Paul. And ironically, Paul's now in like jail, okay? But he's hundreds of miles away. What do you do if you're the Philippian jailer? You pout and you say, God, why'd you take this guy out of my life? He was my, he was my guy. no. No, you look for the knowledge of Christ wherever you can find. We, unlike the Philippian jailer, have been, been given the God, it's right in your laps. We've been given the Bible. If there's one source in this planet, or in this, on this planet, that shows us the character and nature of God, it's there. So Paul is sure that as they walk and conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, they will find success in their journey, regardless of his presence. So not only are these effects not dependent on our situation or by human observation, 
But also these effects of this duty of conducting ourselves, the effects of this duty unite the church in the faith, despite suffering and struggle. Let's consider what uh, Paul says at the end of verse 27. He says, I, I know that you will stand firm in the Spirit, striving together as one person for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So what does a church look like whose members are individually living a life worthy of the gospel? Our passage today says that we will be standing firm, linked arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, striving together as one person for the faith of the gospel. It's an athletic, which actually is being used by Paul metaphorically, as a military metaphor, okay? Battle metaphor, okay? Philippian, uh, Philippi was a, was a military colony, okay? So this only makes sense, okay? Shoulder to shoulder, in the ranks, for the gospel, for the faith of the gospel of Christ, okay? And while, while the faith here that's mentioned might refer to the personal growth of the individual Philippian member, I believe Paul is speaking here more so of the propagation of the faith delivered to the Philippian church that led to their conversion. It's the evangelistic phenomena that occurs as the zeal of the saints for the fame of Christ emboldens them to share the gospel with their neighbors. Many times I think we have this idea of fishing for men. You know, you've, you've, Jesus said this, right? He said, I'll make you fishers of men. And many times we think of this uh, guy walking out to a pond on an early morning and uh, he gets his tackle box and, whoosh, you know, there go. I've never, I mean, we, we fished a few times, but you're laughing for a reason. Uh, not much, and I wasn't good at it and I hated putting the worm on. Anyhow, so we got, that, I, we got that metaphor. That is not the metaphor, not the metaphor that, that Christ is wanting us to uh, understand fishing for men. It's not some individualistic pursuit, okay? So you're not getting up all by yourself one Sunday morning before church and, and pulling in the bass, right? What Christ had in mind there was a corporate event, okay? You remember when Jesus called the disciples? Okay, he didn't just call one of them who was casting his line. He called a bunch of them who were fishing together, okay? Back then, fishing was a corporate activity where you all got your nets, and the villager, you know, sometimes there's a whole village. They all get their nets, go out into their boats, and do things together, bringing up the fish together, okay? That's what's in mind when Jesus says, I'll make you fishers of men, okay? Talking about evangelistic preparation, okay? So we as a church are called to be fishers of men, but it does not mean you taking your fishing rod out to the pond. It means us taking our nets out together to the world, okay? It, that, that means necessarily that we're going to have to be cooperative, okay? <laughs> You can't say, I want to throw it out this side of the boat, and the other guy says, no, I want to throw it out this side of the boat. Your net's not going to go anywhere, okay? You've got to be in an agreement, okay? It's like a, a, a diehard Yankees fan uh, and a diehard Red Sox fan finding themselves in battle next to each other. 
and looking at each other, and one guy's got, you know, like a tattoo of, you know, his Red Sox, and the other guy's got like this patch of a, of a you know, Yankees emblem, and, and they're like looking at each other, like, oh, I don't know if I can deal with this guy. No, they, they completely bypass that, okay? They got, they got guys 100 yards away who are firing at them, and they overlook their petty differences, and they strive toward beating back the enemy line and pushing forward the line of the good guys, okay? This is the same thing we've got here in this church, this North Point body, okay? What matters most now isn't music style in worship, it's not building preferences, it's not any other host of any penultimate inclinations. Those things are all forgotten in light of the main commission of the church, which is to make disciples. That is the spreading of the faith of the gospel. That's why we were left here, okay? Why, why, do we, why are we left here? There's a reason. Mark, Mark addressed that last week. Whether my life or my death, I want it to be that in my body, I am honoring Christ. And we do that in a very special way as the church by spreading the faith of the gospel. And one of the greatest temptations of the church in America is to lose sight of the corporate aspect of the church. We choose to do things our own way. The American DNA is individualism. While these things can all differ, okay, while we, we all have different life struggles and situations, it is our mission as a church to come alongside each other and help each other in this battle. When we choose not to allow others into our lives, we choose to be individualistic, I'm not going to let people help me, I'm not going to let the church do its thing, we hinder not only our own spiritual growth, but we hinder the proclamation of the faith. Okay? It's, a, it's an interesting idea, okay? So when you think, oh, it's just my sin, I don't want anybody to know about it because it's me, it's only affecting me, okay? True, it might affect you, but it is our corporate struggle together that the watching world sees. And as they see you and I struggling and allowing others to reach into our lives and help us, that powerfully promotes this gospel. There's something very special about that. So what are the consequences of ignoring this exhortation? Okay, to walk or conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, the reverse of Paul's description will be true. We will major on the minor issues of disagreement and we'll be at each other's throats for them. We'll focus on our own agendas rather than considering the needs of others more important than ourselves. We will strive against one another to the detriment of the faith. And we'll look around in defeat as we see the inability of the gospel to change not only our own lives, but the lives of others around us. The consequences for ignoring this all 
important, whatever else happens, command are dire. We must conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And at this point in the sermon, I'm thinking to myself, I can't do this. Okay? This is is too much. Okay? If it's up to me, Paul, it's too much. You have no idea how weak I am right now. You might be thinking, there's at least three people in this room right now that I can't even look at, okay? Let alone link arms with them in proclamation of the faith. My wife and I get into, this is not true, I hope. Uh, my wife and I get into spats more regularly than we pray. It might be true, and maybe that is true, okay? And, and maybe I should be okay if it is true, you know, saying it out loud here. My faith, you might say, is paper thin. And at the moment, to be honest, I'm just not that great of a Christian. So please, Paul, don't put all this on me. Well, thankfully, as will be later confirmed in the book, this is not the good news about Greg. This is the good news about Jesus Christ. It is in his power and for his sake that this gospel goes. The very nature of the gospel of Christ is that it is God who works in us both to want and to do his good pleasure. Paul's not asking us for us to muster up the mental and spiritual and physical energy to obey this command. Rather, he is asking that we believe in Jesus' work alone on our behalf as the result, and as a, as a result, live a life that demonstrates a rest in his good news. Our prayer week is coming up uh, next week. Not this week, but next week. So it might be good to use prayer as a microcosm uh, for this kind of category. Um, some of you, even when you heard that we're going to have prayer week uh, next week, you're like, ah, oh, man, I don't like praying. It's so hard, and I get so distracted, and it's just not overall fun. Um, but, but there it is, right? So th- there's, there's the issue. We focus in on the, the praying. We make the praying the object of our strivings instead of what prayer is. Prayer is the knowing of God. It is the drawing ourselves closer to him in fellowship with him. And similarly, we get all bent out of shape trying to conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ, okay? That can be a... a, a our, our issue here. We get all bent out of shape about this, but we forget Jesus, whose gospel it is, that we honor with our obedience. Jesus isn't necessarily honored because we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of his gospel. Rather, Jesus is essentially honored because we love his gospel and live in a manner worthy of his gospel. And living in that manner is but a natural response to our infatuation with him, okay? So you can do all these things that Paul has just mentioned and it'd be of no consequence, okay? Paul talks about this in, in 1 Corinthians. You can do all these things. If you don't have love, it's like you've done nothing, okay? So again, Jesus isn't necessarily honored because we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the, his gospel. Rather, Jesus is essentially honored because we love his gospel and living in a manner worthy of that gospel is but a natural response 
of our infatuation with him. Okay? So that's where the work of this command comes. And that's why meditating on his gospel is so essential. The more you know about God and his gospel, the more you'll love him. There's no aspect of the gospel that, that is sour to a Christian or unappealing or putting putting out okay everything that we mine of the truths of the gospel will lead to our love for him and it is that love that drives this command okay it's like a it's like a marine as 10 year old who's always dreamed of being a marine okay he grows up this is not me he grows up and uh, you know, he gets to the age where he can finally enter or enlist. And wouldn't you know it, he, he makes it. And he becomes a Marine. Okay? And he's, his whole life he's tried to live in a manner worthy of a Marine. You know, that, that calling, what are they? I don't know, they've got a few sayings or whatever. But it's basically be faithful and be strong. And I don't know, I'm probably making that up. Um, anyhow, he's trying to attain to this position. And he finally makes it. And and his, his love for that position, his enthusiasm and drive for that position is the thing that makes it possible for him to conduct himself in a manner. That's why he shines his shoes and, and gets up early and do all, does all these um, military exercises. Not because he necessarily likes shining his shoes. He might be a slob okay, by nature, but he conforms himself to this outward or this external reality because he loves it so much. I'll do anything if I can be a Marine, okay? That's the kind of category that Paul's driving at here. He's, you don't have to, these things that we do as Christians, they are but outworkings of the love that we have for this gospel, okay? So where does this all lead? In a world of struggling and suffering, okay? So that's the next portion here. So conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, Paul says, creates stability amidst a world of alarm. So let's look at uh, verse 28. Paul states that the church will not be frightened by or, or, or in anything by her opponents. Okay? And then, and then he spends the rest of the, I don't know, it's two and a half verses or whatever, talking about suffering. Okay? And the question is, why, why, Paul, are you making such a big deal about suffering? Okay? Um, you've already told us that only, you know, just one thing, whatever else happens, walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in that way. Well, wh- why, do, why do we need to spend so much verbiage on suffering? Well, I think, I think one of the reasons is walking worthy of the gospel of Christ confirms the, in the midst of suffering, I should say, confirms the gospel's veracity or authenticity in us when we're not frightened by those who would oppose us. Okay? So let me briefly explain here. So the Bible is clear. It's crystal clear on one thing. If, if it's clear on one thing, it's, it's, it's crystal clear on this one thing. And that is that Christians will endure suffering. In fact, our passage today, if you notice, in verse 29, it says that suffering comes directly through the providence of God. Okay? He, he, uh, he writes it, verse 29, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, what a gift, okay, 
but also that you should suffer for his sake. It's been, it's been granted or given to you. You can be sure that nothing is wasted in God's economy. And just as he uses your trust in him to show his glorious worth to a watching world, so he uses your suffering as a litmus test to demonstrate the authenticity of your trust and faith in him. Think about um, Job here, okay? Job was a pretty good guy. He was righteous. But it was his suffering that proved it. Satan had the opportunity to say, hey God, Job only loves you because you give him good things. He hasn't had a scraped knee in his life. And it was his suffering that gave God the opportunity to demonstrate Job's authentic faith. So while living a life that does justice to the gospel in the midst of suffering does not merit us more grace in the sight of God. It does magnify the grace that has already been granted to us in Jesus. Okay? Say that again. Living a life that does justice to the gospel in the midst of suffering does not merit us more grace in the sight of God, but it does magnify the grace that has already been granted to us in Jesus. Therefore, living in a manner worthy of the gospel in the midst of suffering can be particularly glorifying to God and, as James mentioned a couple weeks ago, encouraging to other believers. Okay? Paul said that his imprisonment had led to the spread of the gospel and then the encouragement or the, the confidence building of Christians around him. So all of these things come through the hand of God for the sake of the faith. And those who reject our God and oppose us because of his gospel, our composure and joy in the midst of suffering is a sign to them. Okay, this is what Paul says. It's a sign to them that God is powerfully at work in us through his spirit and that all that they deny of his greatness will soon come undone at the revelation of the king we promote. We promote him with our lips and our lives. And when they see that great king sustaining us through their opposition, they must take pause and think how great of a God that must be. So it's a sign for us of our deliverance. This is true. And the Spirit's working in me. He's making me a, a new person. I'm a, I'm a citizen of a new kingdom now. That's a sign to me of my deliverance, but it's also a sign of their destruction. Wow, what they are saying must be true. And if it's true, I'm done. This is exactly what the Philippian jailer experienced. You remember when everything was coming undone in his world? When this earthquake happened and he was responsible for all the inmates and he was thinking, they're all gone, I'm done. He comes to Paul and he says, what must I do to be saved? He had been hearing Paul singing and doing whatever Paul was doing, dictating letters, I don't know. And he knew the glories of that gospel. And when trouble came, when suffering came, he was reminded of his destruction and it led to his deliverance. So we're an aroma 
okay? We're an aroma of Christ. To some, an aroma of life. To others, an aroma of death. But let us, I'm just encouraging us, let us be something, some strong aroma for people to smell. It's not your job to make it an aroma of life or death, but it is your job to be an aroma of Christ. Okay? I'm preaching to myself here, so if I'm sounding fired up, it's me too. Okay? So the main driving message here, conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ. It will sustain you. It will be your greatest joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of struggle. Let's pray.